Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Hi, this is Jim. And this is Max. Check out our podcast, The Step Over, Liberty Ballers Podcast Network, for all of your Sixers' needs. Player analysis, game breakdowns, who would look coolest in a headband, and more. Subscribe to Liberty Ballers Podcast feed on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and check out The Step Over, a podcast about Sixers basketball. Mostly. Michael Kist. Benjamin Solak. It's the Kiston Solak Show, presented by SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. You are flying high on the Kist and Solak Show. This is episode 62, brought to you by the fine folks at SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. I am your host, Michael Kist. Follow me on Twitter at Michael Kist and fell as always, joined by the best doggone co-host in the game, Mr. Eight Year Streak Without a Bad Day. He is Benjamin Solak. Follow him on Twitter at Benjamin Solak. That's S-O-L-A-K. Ben. It's been a productive day preparing for Eagles Bears here. I'm having the time of my life here in 2019, but you know I gotta ask. We're recording on Monday, January 1st, 2019. Have you started off the new year with a good day? Well, yeah, every day is a good day to be alive, Mike. I had a fantastic day. <laughs> uh, though, by the way, we're enemies because why did you spend the whole day preparing for the Bears? We're not. I have no Bears information yet. Mike, Mike hits me up like an hour before the podcast. And he's like, yo, I spent all day like like looking over bear stuff. I was like, aren't we talking about the Redskins today? Like that review? And he was like, yeah, I've just, you know, gotten early work on the bear stuff. So Mike's just going to try to preempt me with a bunch of bears knowledge for the whole podcast. It's because he didn't warn me that he was going to do this. Also, happy Jason Kelsey day. I feel it's very appropriate yes. that we are starting the playoffs on the Jason Kelsey podcast. Shout out to Kelsey. Look, I was just trying to push out content for the website. I got two articles out today. That's why I said it was a production. And now day. he's flexing on me because he's gotten two more articles out on me this week because I was driving all week back from Pittsburgh for New Year's. Unbelievable. First 90 seconds of the podcast, and it's just trash Ben as much as possible. Double flex. Got to deal with it, Ben. Look, I know you're having a good day, but I'm going to tell you who didn't have a good day recently, at least uh, on Monday. And that's all the coaches that were fired. And even before that, Green Bay, which was more like Green Bay, am I right? Because they gave Mike McCarthy his walking papers. I am not going to apologize <sighs> for that, Ben. Oh, okay. I'm better now. You can keep going. <laughs> then on Monday, Marvin Lewis ends his 67-year tenure as the Bengals head coach. Arizona gives Steve Wilkes one year and gave him the boot. The Broncos showed Vance Joseph the door. The Jets told Todd Bowles, his best was not good enough, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers took one year too long, in my opinion, to tell Dirk Cutter that this ain't it, Chief. How long was Dirk Cutter the coach of the Bucks? I think it was three years. Wasn't yeah, it? it took three years too long to tell him that he was then, <laughs> you know, not all right. Here's, that's my tricky thing is that like I, I always, I never like to see one and done coaches. I think that's ridiculous. But also like Steve Wilkes, one and done. I didn't think Steve Wilkes should have been hired in the first place. I didn't think Steve Wilkes warranted from the, the breadth of work that I saw from him as a one-year defensive coordinator for the Carolina Panthers. I didn't think he warranted 
a head coaching job. Yeah. So I, I'm not upset about the fact that they fired him in terms of I think it'll be good for Josh Rosen and the development of their franchise. I think they have an opportunity here. They have a franchise quarterback in place, and that in and of itself can be very attractive to head coaching candidates, especially good offensive minds who are stepping up into the head coaching ranks, whatever. So I, I like it from that perspective, but I hate to see one and dones simply because I, I don't understand how you could potentially hire a guy and say, listen, like after one year, if you're bad enough, we'll fire you. Like no head coaching job is fixed after With one that year. roster? Yeah, which honestly reminds me, very, very funny thing that happened today. The Chicago Bears official Twitter account tweets out, congratulations, Matt Nagy, big graphic, most wins among active coaches in their first season with 12, which they did not specify regular season. So they're basically admitting he's going to end the year with 12 wins, which I found very curious that we're only here on uh, Tuesday. They're already waving the white flag, already acknowledging the fact Eagles got this puppy in the bag. They're like, listen, congrats to Matt Nagy for 12 wins, most active head coaches. Did not specify regular season, Mike. Did not. So Nagy's ending the season with 12 12 wins. It was written in the stones, written in the stars. What what do you think of the situation in Tampa Bay moving on from their coach? And they're saying that Jameis Winston is going to be back as the starter at QB. So they're going to have to reset things there. Right. So what I've been told is that on the condition that Winston is remaining, Bruce Arians is interested enough in that position. Obviously, Arians is is pretty close to the Glazers. That makes a ton of sense. Is interested enough in that position to take the head coaching job, which if you've got a bead on Bruce Arians coming back, then yeah, you fire a lot of the current head coaches in the league to potentially bring Bruce Arians back, in my opinion. I think he's a fantastic head coach. I think he's wonderful for a young quarterback in Jameis, who right now is Jameis it? No. But could he still be it? Yes. Like he's He's been around for a few years, so you're not typically at that still middling spot, but shockingly, I think the first two quarterbacks, the two quarterbacks of that class, 2015, Mariota and Winston, are both not it yet, which typically quarterbacks, you can figure out that they're it by now, but also they've shown enough where you're still kind of worth investing in them, in my opinion, both of them, which is very peculiar. So I agree. I think they should have moved on from Cutter a while ago. I never think they should have hired Cutter. The Cutter hire was was 100%, hey, our young quarterback has a good relationship with this guy. Let's put him in charge of the whole franchise, which sometimes works, but Man, it did. It never seemed destined to be good from the beginning. Let's talk about the fact that Cutter gave play calling to his offensive coordinator, Todd Monken. Offense looked yeah. great, and then he took it back, which can, me can only be explained out of pride. And now Todd Monken is getting head coaching interviews with the Jets, and they might lose Monken, who's the best offensive mind they've got there and the best play caller they've got there, obviously when Cutter was there. So Monken's now going to be able to get out the building, the, the Jets, two seasons after wrongfully moving on from John Morton, their good offensive coordinator, who was running an air raid system with a lot of success. Robbie Anderson and Jermaine Curse were having career years, might, you know, fall bass backwards into an air raid coach going to be super helpful for that team, which is just the amazing circle of life in the NFL. Monken to Monken and then Eric Benemy, Benemy, uh, the new offensive coordinator for the Chiefs, both whom being interviewed by the Jets, as well as uh, allegedly Cliff Kingsbury, uh, the current USC offensive coordinator who was the Texas Tech head coach. I'm not sure if I like Cliff as a as a head coach in the NFL. He wasn't a very successful head coach in college. So, but as an offensive mind, those three guys very clearly, I really like who the Jets have been bringing in so far. Help with Darnold. They've got good rep- weapons. They extended Quincy Anunwa. Jets could make a big hire. Jets could be a problem. 
Did you see that they also requested to interview Chris Richard, the passing game coordinator for the defense of the Dallas Cowboys? The only defensive guy I'd be interested in, in talking Correct. to. Right. Yep. Oh, I'm glad you agree with me because you once didn't agree with me with how much Chris Richard matters to that Dallas defense, but whatever. What are you talking about? I had nothing but praise for Chris Richard coming into this thing. I said he would want to go somewhere where we would call plays and we disagreed on whether or not it was him or Linehan calling the plays. But he right. should be a head coaching candidate for sure, and I agree. That is the one defensive guy I would bring into the Jets with a young quarterback. Yep. Otherwise, you have to look. Or right. if you do bring him in, you have to have a plan for offensive coordinator because I don't exactly. want to running it the first question i'm asking a defensive-minded head coaching candidate is like give me your offensive coordinator short list right now and then yeah. the next question is this is ours what do you think because i also want you to number one know stuff about guys who aren't on your list and number two i want you to be flexible with who you're working with on offense because defensive coordinators tend to only be interested in offensive coordinators who are good against their defense which is kind of stupid so <laughs> uh that richard interests me in that regard i think that from what i understand the browns who man i want to believe in the browns looking at Adam Gase and like Vance Joseph and Greg Williams and Mike McCarthy. And I, I mean, if you're keeping Freddie Kitchens, right. Cool. But I don't know what a redux is going to do. I think I've got a little bit more faith in McCarthy simply because though McCarthy always received too much credit for the success of green Bay, at least he's actually been successful as compared to the other guys listed. Uh, so that one, I think I could get my head around him and kitchens would be a pretty nice tandem in my opinion. I mean, as long as McCarthy understands he's not operating the offense, Kitchens is. And then you have to be willing to move on from McCarthy to elevate Kitchens, in my opinion. Because if you're keeping Kitchens on as offensive coordinator, and even if you're chucking the associate head coach bone, if Baker has a good year too, people are coming calling for Freddie Kitchens. I mean, for goodness sakes, the Rams quarterback coach, Zach Taylor, younger brother of Press Taylor, is getting head coaching interest, Mike. (laughs) And we don't even think golf is that good on this podcast. Shh, don't tell anybody. So like, you know what I mean? It's if you are associated with a very successful young quarterback, you are going to get interest, period. So the Browns, they're probably not going to elevate Freddie Kitchens, but you should understand that by the time we hit 2020, 2021, Kitchens either going somewhere else or becoming your head coach. It's one of the two. Absolutely as long as the correct. success continues, obviously. Yes. Okay. So we got that head coaching carousel stuff out of the way. We previewed a little bit of what we might think, what some teams are doing. Of course, we're going to be covering this all off season long, but it isn't the off season for the defending Super Bowl champion Philadelphia Eagles. Of course, throughout this week, we'll be covering the matchup upcoming with the Chicago Bears. Right now, we're going to take a look back. We're also going to look at where the team is trending overall because this isn't the sexiest matchup to do a full all-22 film review of this previous game because, yeah, the Redskins definitely weren't it. So uh, heading into the playoffs, what is the Eagles' identity? What has changed for them in recent weeks? What can we expect from them moving forward? Now, I know we're going to be getting some new listeners to the show as we ramp up towards the playoffs. So one thing that I wanted to drive home uh, that we've gone over before in depth is the difference in this Eagles offense when it comes recently to the quick passing game. Last year, as we got to the playoffs, we saw this team kind of morph into this faster time to throw type offense and it paid dividends. This Mm -hmm. year, since week 14, We have seen the same to an even larger degree. Starting in week 14, once against the Cowboys, an average of 2.2 seconds time to throw. Third fastest of the week. Week 15, Foles, 2.19, second fastest. Week 16, Foles, 2.32, tied for fifth fastest. Week 17, 2.18, lightning fast, second fastest again. And he is the fastest 
in the last four weeks, Foles is in the NFL time to throw. Been in the last four weeks, quickest release team in the NFL, which is so funny because I remember suggesting this in the offseason as one way of protecting Carson Wentz, and it didn't materialize until week 14, which is a microcosm of this season. But look, in that span, the highest pressure rate that we have seen is 32% in week 15. That's wow. a beautiful thing because you are giving your quarterback clear, defined reads and windows and keeping him pretty clean and upright throughout the duration of the game. And we can talk about why that's important against the Bears once we get into the previews. But I think it's pretty obvious regardless. This shift to the quicker passing game has been a plus. The execution has been better in this stretch leading to the playoffs. And that's got to give you some hope moving forward, Ben. Absolutely. And and this is a little bit of a, of a spoiler, but I guess not really because the post will be up on Bleeding Green Nation by the time you hear this. But the 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 big kahuna the what's different about the offense with Foles uh, versus Wentz uh, I've got it up it's on Wednesday at Bleeding Green Nation and one of the things that we talk about is simply this was alluded to in 2017 it's back in 2018 when Carson Wentz is the quarterback they run Doug Peterson's offense when right. Nick Foles is the quarterback they run the Doug Peterson version of the Chip Kelly offense right. and it's really it's it's like when Nick Foles was setting his first round of records which what even is that sentence. <laughs> It was with the Chip Kelly system that had first taken hold in the NFL. And as we saw, and as has been discussed and it's been written about, as Chip Kelly fell out of favor in the NFL, the man, in terms of how he ran a culture, how he ran a locker room, the way he kind of treated his players as interchangeable and replaceable, that very college mindset, uh, as he fell out of favor, the offensive minds in the league quietly excised, you know, surgically took out those little pieces of his offense that worked oh so very, very well, and have integrated it to a point where you know, the Chip Kelly mesh, which we call mesh, mesh sit wheel, which has been so successful for Philadelphia. And you've seen it on our timelines. And you've seen us write about it. You've seen us, heard us talking about it. That's called the Chip Kelly mesh for a lot of teams because that, that wrinkle of the sit uh, on top of uh, the mesh uh, with the sit in the middle and then uh, tagging it with the wheel occasionally. Mesh sit, just as a general idea, is very Chip Kelly. As he brought that to the league, it was very successful. And that's why you see a huge amount of it with Foles. That quick time to throw is because a lot of that Chip Kelly system with shallow crossers and with curl routes with stick concept is all about putting underneath zone defenders in conflict. I'm going to take the curl flat guy. I'm going to screw with him. I'm going to take the hook guy. I'm going to screw with him. That middle linebacker, he is slow. I'm going to make him try to do something fast. We're just going to take underneath defenders, put them in a place of conflict, and let our smart quarterback, Nick Foles, get rid of the ball very, very quickly. And just to jump into there real quick about that, it's kind of like with the RPOs where you're putting one guy in conflict, you're reading that one guy, which is a huge advantage for the passing game when you just have to key in on that one guy with those concepts. And that's just, right. not just for RPOs. It's for that stuff you're talking about, too. And that's why when we talk about so, – so we talk about RPOs, and obviously RPOs have a little bit of their background in the read option. And the read option was either you know I hand off the ball to the running back or I keep the ball as the quarterback. And I make my decision based off the action of an unblocked defensive end in space. Option reads – are not dissimilar to how progressions work down the field. And that's why, like, when we talk, oh, what's the progression on mesh, sit, wheel? Well, it goes wheel, mesh, crosser, other mesh, from, like, right to left. If the wheel's going to the right, it goes wheel, mesh, the sit route, and then the other mesh. Okay, that's technically how the the, the progression works. But really what that illustrates what that one two three four talks about is just putting that curl flat defender in conflict why the first two reads wheel 
and then the mesh. So if that curl flat guy can get connect, if he, if he can't get connected to the wheel route, if he can't get there in space, that ball's going right to the mesh route. And if he's able to get there, that means the area he just voided is probably going to be open for the mesh route that's coming. That's how progressions work. It's just taking a defender who has to cover this space and then putting routes in that area to the point where he has to choose. And when he has to choose, if either the defense can't adjust or the defense can't get pressure, there should be an opening. And that's how you, you it's just putting defenders in conflict and it's giving Nick Foles a very easy style of reads in that regard. And it's something that we talk about as well when it comes to Nick Foles pre-snap. Well, being able to recognize the pre-snap look of the defense, something that we've said Nick Foles is very, very good at. Well, that's what allows Foles to know who's going to be in conflict and know how the defense is going to look once the progression occurs. And so the last point I'd like to make here, just in terms of that quick passing game, puts those players in conflict. We've been talking a lot about week 14 through week 17, the last four games for the Philadelphia Eagles, Dallas, and then the Foles era with the Rams, the Texans, and now the Redskins. That's been a time where you've seen 12 personnel take a massive step over 11 personnel. As a matter of fact, 11 personnel overtook it in week 17 because the Eagles just ran out of 11 personnel the whole freaking game. It was very clearly a tendency-breaking game. But generally speaking, over those four weeks, you've seen 12 personnel be significantly more successful in terms of success rate over 11 personnel. In week 14, it was a 24% more successful. Week 15, 16% more successful. Week 16, 14% more successful. And then week 17, they were tied. But that success rate, especially in the air, is very interesting when you look at yards per attempt and air yards per attempt, because in 11 personnel, we're looking at 7.6 air yards per attempt and 8.4 yards per attempt. So most of the passing yardage is coming through the air. In 12 personnel, that that air yards per attempt comes way down. It comes down to 5.3, 5.3 air yards per attempt, two air yards lower. But the yards per attempt is 8.6. It's actually higher. So in 12 personnel, when Philadelphia's out there, which they've run significantly more with more success over this Foles era, the, the, the depth of passing is coming way down. But the yards per attempt is staying up there. Yak is a potential thing here. We're talking about a lot of those mesh routes, a lot of those crosser routes. You hit those guys in stride, they can turn up field. So that's where the ideological change is happening. The offense is looking better and producing more in the passing game in terms of uh, of points and even in yardage. But the, the depth of target has come down towards the line of scrimmage. So we hear a lot, Nick Foles is a great deep passer, and he has some good deep balls. But honestly, his strength is working the short and intermediate area of the field very mentally quickly. And how you know that this offense is working is you expect certain things. When you have a quicker time to throw, you have a larger depth of target. In the last four weeks, in the NFL, passers over 20 attempts, Nick Foles is 8.5 yards per attempt. He is tied with San Francisco Nick Mullins for the most yards per attempt. And we're just getting this thing out fast, man. Like it's right. working for us. Yeah. And you're gonna you're gonna have big yard per attempt numbers when you're constantly working these short ideas because you're completing it's going to give you the one-on-one opportunities that help you shooting deep like Carson Wentz through through a, a handful an uncharacteristically large amount of deep interceptions this year well he was throwing a lot into double coverages he was getting overlapped by safeties and when you're not getting the one-on-one coverage you want down the field then you're throwing your downfield throws are going to be into tougher coverages that like in that mindset in that ilk i want you to turn your books if you're following along on game pass quarter one it's going to be uh eight minutes and 40 seconds in 
It is a second and five from the uh, 21 yard line. And it's going to be a sack. This is a play where Nick Foles gets sacked. And what you see happen here is Philadelphia is coming out in a formation that they love a great deal. They've got two tight ends, a little ace wing sort of a set with your wide receivers split on either side of the formation. Alshon Jeffrey right now is isolated backside. It is an unbalanced set, Mike. Running back, two tight ends, and Nelson Aguilar, the other wide receiver, all to one side of the field. Yeah. Alshon Jeffrey to the other. But against this unbalanced set, you'll see that Washington comes out with cone coverage over top of Alshon Jeffrey. They have a corner underneath him, and they have a safety on top of him. Houston did this a lot against the Eagles, too, yeah. Right. And number one, it shows you that Jeffrey is receiving that level of respect against defenses. Great news for Philadelphia. It's going to help open other things up. When you have two guys covering one guy, the other guys usually are in man-on-man coverage. Now, And it wasn't happening last year. This is a fairly new development with Jeffrey and the way the defenses are treating him on the backside YISO, for sure. And you can, you can go right to the fact that on third downs, if Nick Nick Foles has one-on-one coverage with Alshon Jeffrey. Let me tell you where the ball is going. He just <laughs> yes, looks at him. If, yeah. if Foles walks to the line and he sees cover one, you know, potential blitz, you know, five, six blitzers, and Alshon is isolated man-on-man in press man coverage, Nick Foles literally stands at the line, looks at Alshon Jeffrey, looks back and snaps the football because he's just letting Alshon know, listen, be larger than the other people on the field. Like, that's just basically what it is. Yeah. But this situation where Alshon's getting a cone coverage, well, that allows Philadelphia to get Nelson Aguilar one-on-one against a corner in a deep third. The middle safety steps up to handle Zach Ertz, who's coming across the middle of the field. Washington has to remain in this cover three sort of a look, this pattern match sort of a look, because Philadelphia is so willing to send crossers across the middle and these short areas of the field. So if you try to play full man-on-man coverage here, Against an unbalanced set, four versus four over one, you're going to have linebackers chasing tight ends into very empty areas of the field, yeah. right? Think about if there's one man on Jeffrey and he, and Jeffrey just clears him out deep. Well, then there's nobody in that flat because all the other offensive weapons were to the other side of the field. So they had forced into a zone coverage. They're forced to pattern match and to watch for the crossers. Ertz pulls up the middle of the field safety. Aguilar is, is free and clear down the field. This is the exact sort of a, a, a similar look. Yeah. That he got against Teron Matthew that scored 83-yard touchdown against the Texans in a huge play. Foles doesn't pull the trigger on this one. I think he could have. Aguilar didn't have a great step, but he did have space. He's not necessarily even and leaving, but Foles, this is like a Foles, like he he kind of he kind of pumps it like he wants it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so he looks not to send it. He ends up taking a three-yard sack. I wish he would have sent it. I think he could have gotten yeah. it. That being said, this is a great example of how when you're cognizant of the crossers that Philadelphia is going to send, and you're worried about Alshon Jeffrey one-on-one, well, it's very hard. If, if Philadelphia is going to come out in unbalanced sets, which I saw way more unbalanced sets, again, unbalanced, four receiving options to one side of the field, and only one on the other side of the ball, unbalanced sets. I saw way more of them in the Redskins game than I have the rest of the year. If this is how teams are going to respond... Yeah. You're going to have one-on-one shots with either Aguilar or Mike Wallace. And honestly, the fact that Mike Wallace was activated and then Philadelphia started coming out with this nonsense is to me a little, hmm, a little interesting. Because <laughs> going to take Aguilar, like you, if you have Wallace back now, Wallace can be that outside Z receiver, put Aguilar in the slot, let Wallace start taking some cover through corners down the field. Baby, the kid can fly. So that, that, that it's very curious to me that you saw a big shift to 11 personnel with Wallace back. But that's the strength that Philadelphia's going to have with this Chip Kelly style of offense. I love it. And I love getting Aguilar activated as a deep threat. You're throwing Wallace. Oh, you had to. Too. You had to go stunt on me with Aguilar as a deep threat. Look, Ugh. here's what I'm telling you. Remember, uh, before week 14, the Eagles were tied dead last. There was a scoring drive with five plays or less. 
They lead the NFL in five plays or less scoring drives in the past four weeks with seven. No one better. Run that stat back by me again because that's sick. In the last four weeks, no team in the NFL has as many, and the Eagles have seven of these, drives with five plays or less that are touchdown drives. Nicholas Foles, baby. Also turnovers, but Nick Foles, baby. That's (laughs) awesome. And... You start getting some of the explosive plays in this offense. So I like the way that they're scheming this up. Now, Ben, I want to play a little guessing game since we're doing, we're taking this little piece of time this week 14 to 17 because teams are not what they were in week one, week eight, week 12. Sometimes teams are what they're currently playing like in the last few weeks. That's how they enter the playoffs. That's how we're going to treat them, right? So we're going to play a little guessing game and we can talk about recent trends with this team under that umbrella, maybe in some of the film that you saw from this Washington game as well. Now, I'm not a huge proponent of pro football focus grades. I know you're not either, Ben. But for this exercise, Mm -hmm. we'll just use them as a guideline because I actually think that how they stack these Eagles from the – from actually, this is the buy and after. I'm sorry. This is week 14 through 17. This is the buy and after. So this is a nice sample size, and that's important after the buy. I feel like how they stack these guys makes a lot of sense as far as how their grades go. So, Ben, top five graded Eagles since the buy. I want to start with offense. Do you want to take a stab at who was at number one? And I thought he had a great game again against the Redskins. All right. So is this the top five on offense or top five total? And the five guy is offense. Top five on offense. Just offense. Hmm. Brandon Brooks. No, he's not in the top five at all. You, you missed That's the first heresy one. already. <laughs> you see why we don't necessarily love the grades. But I, th- I think you'll like this. Jason Kelsey has been the top grade that offensive yeah. player. No, I was, yeah. That would have been my other guess. Yeah, he's been crushing it. Big time Pro Bowl snub. I love the way that he played Washington yet again, handling the interior of that defense. Number two, Nick Foles just been balling out recently. He's got a grade of 80.4. Number three, I'm going to let you take a stab at this one real quick. I think you're going to like this, and it kind of goes to what we talk about a lot on this show. Who is it? Number three, offense or defense? Offense. It's all offense right now. He's the number three graded player. Goes to a lot to what we're, we talk about on this show. Yes, that's correct. Mike Rowe, listener of the podcast. I want to guess Dallas Goddard, but I feel like that's too aggressive. Make the call. Dallas Goddard. Ding, 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 ding. Let's go, baby. Let's go. Listen, I had tears in my eyes. He took Ryan Kerrigan for a ride like three times as a run blocker in this game. And I know I'm not supposed to care about run blocking in tight ends. Like I get that (laughs) inside. But in my heart, he makes me so proud. My little son from South Dakota State. He's such a scrappy young lad. Speaking of Ryan Kerrigan, he's been an Eagles killer this year. Doesn't have a single pressure on Lane Johnson. PFF charted that sack to Nick Foles because he literally ran into him. Lane Johnson has been yes. lights out against that dude. We need to talk about, and we will for the Chicago game, a little teaser. Khalil Mack playing like, as as well as any edge rushers, when he, as well as any defensive lineman in the league this year. But Philadelphia this season has been very, very good at taking away your team's best pass rusher. Your right. team's best defensive lineman, especially in recent weeks. Yeah. And so we, I, we, I, I gotta do a little, little tapity tap tap on the computer. Got a little film, film, watch, watch. We gotta figure out what it's gonna be because if they can neutralize Mac the way they were able to neutralize Donald, the way they were able to neutralize Watt, the way they were able to neutralize Demarcus Lawrence. We're talking. We're talking about it's hard because they have Akeem Hicks, Eddie Goldman, you know, Khalil Mack, all certainly. But I am. I will go to sleep at night like a baby if Akeem Hicks and Eddie Goldman beat us as versus 
you know, uh, because we were able to neutralize Khalil Mack, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, Khalil Mack gets you the strip sacks, and we're going to talk about that throughout the week. But number four coming in is Alshon Jeffrey for the best offensive graded player. He's been excellent. Nick Foles getting the ball to him. He's been getting those cone bracket coverages that frees up other things for this offense. He's been fantastic. Got those pickle jar hands. Incredible. Zach Ertz, number five, old dependable. Having big games, set records. Zach Ertz no longer receiving slander from the fan base because Carson Wentz is in that quarterback and we can throw it to him 15 times a game and nobody will care because we're winning. That's how things go. On defense, Ben, do you want to create the, uh, you want to guess what the highest graded Eagle is? If it's not Fletcher Cox, I'm breaking heads. You don't have to break any heads, baby. It's Fletcher Cox all the That's way. That's good because I'm physically, doing? I'm physically incapable of breaking a head. Let's be very clear. <laughs> Did you see what he was doing to that guard, number 62, Kyle Fuller? Doesn't even have a profile picture on the Washington Redskins roster page. Kyle Fuller's the name of a cornerback, Mike. You must be confused. Is it Kyle? It's, it's, I, no. Dude. Is no, it, is honestly, that his name? it is. I'm pretty sure it's Kyle Fuller. The point being, <laughs> Kyle Fuller is a cornerback name. As a cornerback right. player, he should not be out there at left guard. Listen, Haloti <laughs> Nada was looking good. Timmy Jernigan was looking good. That's how oh. bad this interior offensive line is, which I would love for Jernigan and Nada to be like a thing. Like, oh, late in the season, Eagles defensive line depth steps up at the playoffs. That'd be swell. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, I believe it when I see it against a line that is not the Houston Texans or the Washington Redskins. But hey, Jernigan has looked better the past two weeks, no doubt. Speaking of stepping up along the interior defensive lineman, that's the number two spot. There's another interior defensive lineman at the number two spot. Who is it, Ben? It's Michael Bennett. Don't play with me. Trayvon Hester. No. (laughs) No. Listen to me. No. Under zero circumstances. Trayvon Hester comes in at number two. He's graded higher. He's the second highest graded eagle. They have him higher than any offensive player. I have a hard time believing that Trayvon Hester is playing better than Jason Kelsey. I'm just saying. That seems like a stretch. Something wrong with your grading system there. Uh, Should we just throw this whole thing out now with the way that unfolded? He's a practice. He's a, uh, it's, it's whatever. I mean, it's like if right. he's fulfilling his responsibility, then he's fulfilling his responsibility. He's just not an impact right. player. Whatever. I don't think that's sustainable at all. <laughs> May I ask if uh, the illustrious, the magnanimous, Rasul Douglas is in the top five? Because I have a take. I think I know where you're going with this take. He is not. However, he would rank as just under Goddard. So still rating very, very well. He's playing some doggone good football. Ball skills to pay the bills. Go ahead, Ben. What's your take? What do you think it is? You said you think you know where I'm going with this. That he's better than Jalen Mills and he should be starting on the outside next year. We done been had that take for a hot second now. That's we we've been sent on that one. Is it that he's a safety? No. Okay, I, I, I I threw a huge bone to the Rasul Douglas to safety crowd today, literally for fun, because <laughs> uh, I like chaos. Uh, where Rasul Douglas's interception was a great example of what he what a positive safety play would look like. Rasul's basically right. tracking uh, uh, Josh Doxson ran on the left side of the formation. Johnson scrambled right, so Doxson just kind of running back there, you know, back in the deep defensive backfield, and Sewell's just essentially acting like a safety he's maintaining deep leverage on him then he locates the pass it's a bit underthrown he realizes it far before Doxon does and he's able to undercut Doxon and, and win at the catch point which is a great play that if Rasul is a free safety you'd go all right that's why so I, yeah. I, I I explained why that'd be a good play for a safety to make just to kind of cause problems he's still a corner so what's your take if we're calling Avante Maddox this season a safety which I think is rightful because the majority of his snaps this season have been taken out of safety and not corner alignment right 
Rasul Douglas is playing the best ball at corner we have seen all season for the Philadelphia Eagles. I don't what? think he's the best. I don't think he's the best corner on the roster. I still believe that's Ronald Darby. But we have received the best stretch of play. Yes. If you isolate right. that time frame from Rasul Douglas, I agree. We know that, A, cornerbacks in general tend to be players that are predicated on confidence and excitement. B, yeah. the Philadelphia Eagles cornerbacks specifically <laughs> seem to be very predicated on confidence and excitement and, and chutzpah. C, Rasul Douglas, even among all the Eagles corners, even among all the corners in the world, really, really thrives off playing well and being confident. And Sewell is playing very strong football, very aggressive. He's very physical, much, much more so than when he was just like playing reserve reps for 10 snaps a game, like, you know, suddenly because there was an injury. Like he was so passive then. It's, it's such a big difference from when he first came in to now. It looks like mentally the light bulb is way on and really bright. My educated guess would be this. After they saw him start for a few weeks, they got a few weeks of tape on him. I would not be surprised if eventually it was like Corey Allen or Jim Schwartz, whoever basically said, Sewell, listen, we're going to play you like this. And we know you, we've taught you this technique, but if you feel like you need to get hands on the guy, just do it yeah. right. Like you are an instinctive player who thrives making choices based off his vision and on his gut. If you feel like you need to get physical and get upfield on a guy, just go ahead and do it. Like, you know, like, pick your spots. Don't do it every play. That's ridiculous. But, like, you can have those variance plays. We're going to trust you with that as a second-year corner, which is like, ooh. But it's been going pretty well. I still think Sewell is going to get burned sometimes. Yeah. Like, the, he's, he's the nature of corner that he will. We've known that from the beginning when he was a third-round pick and he's not super quick. That's the reality. But in terms of tackling ability, which has killed Philadelphia the corner position this year, number one. Number oh. two, ball skills, which a Philadelphia team has not generated many turnovers this year. Russell Douglas has three, I believe, interceptions on the season. And three, in terms of physicality and, and big body wide receiver matchup, something that Darby, Mills, Cindy Jones all struggle with. Rasul brings a different profile and it is proving incredibly valuable for Philadelphia. It will be huge, Michael, if Sidney Jones can be healthy for the Chicago Bears game. And we don't know yeah. anything about that yet. But if we're talking about Jones, Cravon LeBlanc, Avante Maddox, and Rasul Douglas, you've got enough there to, I think, be alive. In the sense that in the middle of the season, we were like, listen, what can Schwartz do? He has no corners. I think now you have enough and you've worked with them enough this season with the patchwork where you can say, all right, we have a plan for these four. We know how to get them to work. Hmm. Sewell's playing very well. Sewell's probably going to be matched up against number one wide receivers moving forward. You know, if you think about... Uh, maybe like a team like Seattle where it's Doug Baldwin and Tyler Lockett. You're trying to get your smaller, quicker guys on there. But if we're talking about the Allen Robinsons and even the Amari Coopers of the world, I would expect to see Sewell on them moving forward, playing some great football, really enjoyed watching his Redskins tape. Listen, if, if, if confidence is the key, my man's feeling himself. So just let's hope he gets another early interception against the Bears and he just reaches like Super Saiyan level 5,000. What's great is he's so confident. And he's playing really well. He's backing it. There's a reason for him to be right. confident. Whenever we saw Mills get burned, oh, he's a confident guy. He'll recover. Oh, he's a con- it was every week. Sewell's playing well. He's got the confidence. So to recap, Fletcher Cox, number one, graded defensive player after the bye for the Eagles. Trayvon Astor, for some reason, number two. Sure, why not? Jordan Hicks is number three. We've talked about him being yeah. playing like the best linebacker on this football team throughout the season. Number four, I got to give a shout out to him. Malcolm Jenkins, 1,000. And 68 snaps, the industrial glue of the defense, the man, the Iron Man, Malcolm Jenkins, who 
through everything that we've been through with this secondary, going into the Giants game and telling Schwartz to simplify things, keeping that group together, just being the leader that we needed him to be. Props to him for being there for every single snap for this defense. Malcolm Jenkins joined the team in 2014. Michael Kist, what percentage of the defensive snaps has he played since 2014 joining the Philadelphia Eagles? Considering the fact that, like, last year he played, like, 42, what was it, 42% of his snaps at linebacker, he played some Yeah, no, so I'm talking, I'm talking just, just, all of them. and yep. he was on the field, yeah. I know, I'm saying there's no reason to take him off whatsoever unless the guy right. is literally dead. Let me put it at, let's see, this year's 100%, so that's going to put that up there. I'm going to guess 94%. 98.4%. There have been there have been 5,669 snaps. This via uh, Dave Zangaro of NBC Sports. Shout out, Dave. Goodness. 5,669 snaps. That's he has taken 5,579. He has missed 90 snaps. He hasn't even missed 100 snaps yet on defense. He's been here since 2014. That is he bonkers. played last season at linebacker. He used to be a corner. Who is he? It's extraordinary. And so valuable. Play, playing linebacker reps, supporting in the run game, like you're getting banged up. You're not just chilling out there in center and field. And you're like smaller than mix. everybody else. Right. What a Dude, hero. Sh- shout out Malcolm Jenkins. Number five, we'll wrap this up. Avante Maddox has been playing awesome lately. We've written pieces about him. We've glowed about it on here. But here's the interesting thing with Maddox. I just want to touch on this real briefly before we get out of here and then we start to transition towards the preview shows. So mm. you think about it. Avante Maddox, Dallas Goddard in this draft. You're talking about, you know, Rasul Douglas grading high recently, playing some really doggone good football. You, Ben, have been asking for Isaac Siamalu over Stephen Wisniewski. By the way, Stephen Wisniewski, I thought, played much better than he has recently in the Washington Redskins game. Corrections and omissions. I said that I thought Wiz had an up and down game off the broadcast view. He had an up game, and there was no doubt. Do we start to talk about the recent drafting? Because people have been very critical of the recent drafting. Myself included. Right. All Both me and you. Do, do we start to, with the development of Avante Maddox, with what Dallas Goddard brings to this offense, with Isaac Ciamado at least being serviceable as a left guard if you needed him to jump in there and has the versatility to play multiple positions, you add another season of offseason uh, off where he can gain some more functional strength and, he, and that's his main weakness right now. Do we start to look at the, the recent drafting a little bit different based on the way that these guys are playing recently? Because from what we understood earlier in the season – Jim Schwartz wasn't giving Rasul Douglas a chance to get on the field because he just wasn't getting it. Rasul is getting right. it now. Avante Maddox is getting it at safety, outside corner, wherever we need him. Dallas Goddard is a stud. You're right. So your first round picks, you want to be your blue chip players, your impact players. They, sh- they should be the, the players other teams are game planning for when they come through. Yeah, And Derek Barnett has been bad. Derek Barnett has been pretty good. I don't right. know if he's ever going to live up to that hype, but he's been pretty good. I mean, my life has been great because everybody knows I'm probably the biggest Derek Barnett detractor there is, and he hasn't played, so nobody's yelled at me in a very long time. Uh, <laughs> so your first round picks, impact players, your second and third round picks, you'd love to see your second round picks be starters year one, year two, and your third round picks be starters year two, year three. And so Goddard, Sidney Jones, Rasul Douglas, Isaac Samalo, the notable second and third round picks from over the past three drafts. All of them fringe starters who have had some good and have had some bad Goddard probably a little bit more good than bad in terms of it's just his first season and he's obviously got Zach Ertz in front of him so the the sample size is a little small yeah and you can rely on them to make specific contributions to the team without being a liability which is huge for a rookie right so I'll put it to you this way you would have liked to have seen Isaac Samalo become a starter caliber player earlier Sidney Jones is a tricky spot because the injury and now the injury again 
Rasul Douglas developing into a clearly at least like a backup caliber player, if not shooting for starter, is yep. solid. Dallas got a second round pick, contributing year one is solid. So I'm very interested to see what we're looking at in 2019, where you're likely, I think, to see Samalu come into camp as the unquestioned starter, start week one as the unquestioned starter. That's what I would anticipate seeing. And then if Mylotta develops, holy cow. Right. That that's a that's a different matter, right? It's a different matter. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and then it, and then it's the Sidney Jones question mark, which when he was selected at 43, you were basically saying Am I willing to spend 43 on a crapshoot on a player who should have gone top 15? And the answer was, yeah, we're going to do that because we need corners. You know, I don't hate it. What the complaint was in the beginning of the season was, Sam Malu comes in for Wisniewski, doesn't look starting caliber. Rasul Douglas can't break a weak rotation, doesn't look starting caliber. These players should develop into starters. Well, then go 8, 10 weeks down a season that saw injuries, saw them get playing time, and they're starting to look like it. In which case, the drafts will be doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's not that like they won't be like hitting certainly like amazingly, right? It's not like you're going and you're drafting impact blue chippers in round two and round three. But if you're getting starting caliber players in round two, round three, so that you don't have to constantly be signing second contracts and spending a lot of money, that's what you're looking to do in those first three rounds. And so, yeah, it looks like we're nicely on that developmental path. We got to see the consistency from it. We got to see what things look like in 2019. So I'm not fully there. But yeah, I agree with you. He's uh, Roseman's 2017, 2016 classes. That was, those rounds two and round three are beginning to look up more. And that gives you a better projection moving forward with your contract situations. Well said. Ben, I think that is Thanks, going man. to do it for episode 62 of the Kiston Solak show. Of course, that was dealing with last week, the, the trend coming into the playoffs now. The next few shows, we get to really, really get into the nitty-gritty of this matchup. Ben, I am too, man. I am all over this Bears film. I am loving life. Putting content out, man. It's all going to be on BleedingGreenNation.com. Ben's working on some great stuff. I got some RPO stuff up on the Bears. I've got some DVA efficiency stuff with some trends on there, so check that out. But, Ben, would you let the gentle listeners know what we have for them up next on Bleeding Green Nation here on the uh, podcast network? Hey, I'm going to be at the Chicago Bears game up in the press box. Fun announcement, Ben Solak. Shout out. <laughs> I wanted to congratulate, shout out Benjamin Solak for getting press credentials for a playoff game. Dude, uh, that's sorry. huge. I'm I'm happy for you, man. My year has gone like this. Attend training camp. Attend <laughs> preseason games. Try to get credentials because BGN has two credentials. BLG uses one of them. Try to use the second one to go to the Atlanta Falcons regular season game. Do not get admitted because there are way too many people going to that game because it's a Thursday night season opener. Mm. Go to Chicago. Be sad. Ne- I still have never gone to an Eagles regular season game in the link ever. That will not change. Wow. Spend 16 weeks covering the team from Chicago. Try to get to a Bears game this year. It's my last year probably in Chicago. Failed to do so. Did not get to sh- Soldier Field for all four years I was in Chicago. And then the Eagles go five out of the last six games and make it into the wild card and not winning the NFC East. So as to play the Bears in Soldier Field in the playoffs. And yeah, so I'm going to go to that game now, which is sick. It'll be my first playoff game. Yeah, no, it'll be my first playoff game, which is exciting. And then obviously I get to cover the game live, which will be very, very fun. It's going to be an incredible atmosphere. I'm excited about that. So uh, you'll be getting a lot of that content as well when the game finally rolls around. But for now, thank you so much for listening. This is us tying the bow on the regular season for the Philadelphia Eagles and turning fully to the Playoff Kissed and Solak Show podcast on BGN Radio. I've been Benjamin Solak on Twitter, at Benjamin Solak. That's S-O-L-A-K. Michael Kissed on Twitter, at Michael Kissed NFL. That's K-I-S-T. 
we had a, a, a wonderful experience and a ton of an influx of new listeners, as we talked about, and people letting us know that they found the podcast in part because it was ranked very highly on sports and recreation, which is something we've been talking about for a while. Uh, we're very fortunate to be in top 75, top 50 podcasts around this time, and that is heavily conditional on your downloads, but it's even more so conditional on your ratings and your reviews. So if you've enjoyed the podcast here in the waning, but hopefully not waning too much weeks of the NFL season, <laughs> uh, please go ahead before it's too late, leave a five-star rating, leave a review. Those numbers are tremendous for us, for growing our listenership, for showing our bosses, and for us continuing to do this work for you. So please, five-star rating and review on iTunes or whatever app you listen to your podcasts. As Mike said, tomorrow you should be expecting Eagles defense against the Bears offense, and by the end of the week, likely on Friday, you should be seeing the Eagles offense against the Bears defense along with all final our final predictions and that of Brandon Lee Gowton and John Stolness. Thank you so much for listening. We will catch you tomorrow. We all we got. We all we need. Fly, Eagles, fly. Hey guys, this is John Stolnes from The Good Fight and the Phillies podcast, Hitting Season, where I talk to Phillies beat writers, broadcasters, and fellow Good Fight bloggers, as well as national baseball writers, and the occasional interview with Matt Klintak and Gabe Kapler. Also, you'll get continued success, a Phil's podcast hosted by Justin Clue and Liz Rocher covering all things Phillies, and The Dirty Inning, a hilarious podcast hosted by Justin and Trevor Strunk, looking at the very worst innings in Phillies history. Make sure you are subscribed to The Good Fight podcast feed.